a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say the Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say the Damn Score now offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, and we have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths, weaknesses, and places you can improve. Many coaching and critique services are expensive, not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamscore.com slash critique-crew or click on the Critique Crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson. And the Say the Damn Score podcast is a podcast about sportscasting and, in particularly, play-by-play broadcasting uh, by a play-by-play broadcaster. And today, we are going to be joined by Donnie Barnes. He is the number two broadcaster for the AAA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals, that is the Omaha Storm Chasers, a team that is close to my heart coming from Omaha and having gone to many of the old Omaha Royals games as a as a young pup. And Donnie, how are you doing today? I'm good, Logan. I appreciate you having me on. I've been listening to some of your, your past episodes. You've had a lot of really big-name guests, so I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but I'm really uh, honored that you asked, so thank you. Well, I've also... I, I personally, and I don't. Maybe we can start off with this: is I find stories of sportscasters at all levels very interesting, and you know, certainly the the big names are fun to talk to. But I found that sometimes the the person out in the middle of nowhere calling high school games on a tin can on top of a on top of a roof has uh, just as interesting stories as the big guys do. You actually used to host a podcast somewhat similar to what I'm doing now. I believe it was called Candid Voices. What was your thought on the matter? Yeah, that was. Uh, um, I started doing it. I, let's see. I think it was 2012 that I started doing it, and I would only do a handful of episodes per off season. I didn't really have the the time or the number of guests to do that many episodes. But yeah, I mean, it was. I assume like you, when you're working in a small town, as I was in Visalia in Central California, I knew that I needed to sort of get my name out there. People weren't going to come looking for me in Visalia. So uh, I had made a number of big league contacts over the last several years and uh, had a lot of really good mentors and good relationships with those guys. And I realized that it would be it would be cool to talk to them publicly about their stories and how they got to where they are and things that they had overcome and advice that they might have. And um so, yeah, I started I started doing that, and I think I did about 16 or 17 of them, and had some really neat guests. Um, so 
it was good to do. Now that I've moved to Omaha and I'm kind of running my own business and doing broadcasting, I, right now that's not a priority. And uh, you and a couple other guys have really picked it up and are doing a great job and probably doing it even better than I did. So, but uh, it was a good experience. Yeah, you really you really ruined my day one day. I thought I was the original person with a podcast about play-by-play stuff, and then to find out that you had done it years ago, it I, I, I blame you completely for ruining my day for one day. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know how it goes with a lot of these things. It's not the the first person to do it that really figures it out. It's kind of one person starts it, and then somebody else picks it up and does it even better. So I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. All right, so let's get to it. Your first job in sportscasting that I could find anyway, correct me if I'm wrong at any point, was in Alaska where you were the voice of the Alaska Gold Panners. Was that during college or just shortly after college? What was it like working in baseball in Alaska? Yeah, that was between my junior and senior years of college. That was my first, that was my first broadcasting job, so you're right. Um, I had played baseball my entire life and and through college and I'd always wanted to go into broadcasting eventually of course originally like most people my my thought was I'd become a broadcaster after my hall of fame playing career was over uh and then in college when I was still only about 140 pounds I slowly realized that probably wasn't going to happen so I became more interested in going into broadcasting immediately but I really had no idea how to go about it this would have been 2005, 2006, um, there weren't a lot of resources or information online back then about how to become a sports broadcaster. I literally remember sitting at a, at a computer in a study lab uh, in college and, and, and typing in into Google how to become a sports broadcaster. I just had no clue how to do it. So um, I, I had played at a junior college, at Pierce College in L.A., and... I was considering not continuing after I transferred to a four-year school, and I wasn't sure where I was going to transfer to, but I was I was leaning towards hanging them up, um, but then I got recruited to play at a Division three school, Occidental College in Los Angeles, and the head coach had been told that I was an aspiring broadcaster, so actually part of his recruiting pitch to me was, hey, we've got a guy that does some basketball some of our basketball and football games over the internet for free i'll hook you up with him and maybe you can work with him a little bit Uh, so that that actually influenced me to to go there and keep playing for another two years and then that same coach had actually been an assistant coach for alaska during the previous several summers and he wasn't going back that year but he uh, he hooked me up with their decision makers and uh, i was able to go do that for a summer and that was bizarre because i had never I'd never had any training. Nobody had ever taught me anything about how to broadcast a game. I really knew nothing about how it was done. So that was a that was a huge learning experience, but it was it was a lot of fun. Alaska is beautiful in the summer and um, truly some of the most scenic bus trips you will ever take in your life. So a lot of a lot of great memories, but I'm glad that those recordings uh, hopefully aren't available publicly. We'll get more into that here in a minute, but you mentioned scenic road trips, and I bet there were also a lot of really long road trips going around Alaska, or did you ever have to leave Alaska? How long were the trips in the Alaskan League? The way they had the schedule set up, we only went on, I think, two road trips, but they were both about a week long. One of them might have even been two weeks. 
because uh, yeah, it was it was not an easy thing. Fairbanks is kind of in central Alaska, but it's the further it's about the furthest north you can go where there's civilization. <laughs> you go ahead. There, there's another I don't know probably thousand miles north of Fairbanks that's completely impenetrable. Um, so from Fairbanks to Anchorage, it was about ten hours by bus, and you would pass right by Denali National Park. Um, you just see all kinds of incredible stuff on that trip. And then to go down to Kenai, which was in the Southern Peninsula, that was the furthermost uh, south you went. That was probably about 13 or 14 hours. So yeah, there were, there were some long trips. And of course, it never gets, it rarely gets fully dark in Alaska in the summer. So that was pretty bizarre too. Being a college kid in Los Angeles, California, and then moving to the summer to Alaska, was there some culture shock? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Like when you're walking from, they actually lived at the ballpark. They had, they had a bunch of trailers set up right next to the ballpark where a lot of the players uh, would live during the summer. And so there was a pizza hut and a subway that was a couple blocks away that you would end up walking to a lot of days. And I remember walking back from the subway one day back to the ballpark, back to my trailer. And seeing moose tracks on the dirt road like right next to where I was walking <laughs> and realizing oh I should probably be careful here you hear about people getting attacked by moose all the time they're actually really dangerous of course they're huge animals and you know when you're from when you're from a big city this this just isn't something you think about most of the time you sort of arrogantly assume that oh this is the 21st century we've conquered nature we've subdued it we don't really have to worry about it anymore and then you you go live somewhere like that for a couple months and you realize that's not really the norm. So yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a culture shock. Sure. Do you have any other wildlife in the city stories? <laughs> not that I can think of. Uh, I know we, we stayed at the university of Alaska Anchorage when we would go to play the, the Anchorage teams we would stay in their dorms cause it was the summer and school was out and it was a similar thing there. They would tell you, hey, watch for moose. That's, that's a problem here. Students sometimes getting attacked by moose. That was one of the hazards of going to school in Anchorage. Uh, so <laughs> fortunately, that didn't happen to us. But they were definitely around. And uh, it was something that you legitimately had to watch out for. So speaking of somebody else who watches out for moose, you got to interview the governor of Alaska at the time, Sarah Palin, during the first inning of a game while you were doing your broadcast. How did that come about and how did it go? Yeah, that's, that's good research by you. That is, it's one of those things in life that was strange in the moment and just becomes more bizarre in hindsight. She was actually, that was actually the first on-air interview I ever did. And it was one of the first road games I had ever done. It was our first road trip of the year. We were in Palmer, Alaska, playing the Matsu Miners. This really cool little picturesque tiny ballpark in the Wasilla Valley in Alaska. These giant mountains out beyond the outfield. Gorgeous backdrop. And Sarah Palin's actually from that town. We're very close nearby, so that's that was kind of her hometown team. And you gotta remember, this was 2007. So this is the year before she suddenly came out of nowhere and was selected as John McCain's running mate in that 08 election season. So in 2007, nobody knew who she was outside of Alaska. I didn't know who she was. 
we, we pulled up to the ballpark, I don't know, probably about 4 o'clock in the afternoon for a 7 o'clock game. So I got my equipment set up, and I heard somebody say that the governor was going to be there that night. And so I literally had to Google, who is the governor of Alaska? And then, and then I had to walk next door and ask somebody else in the press box, so is her name pronounced, is it Palin? And like, no, it's Palin, giving me dirty looks that I didn't know how to pronounce their governor's name. And so I, I thought to myself, well, I mean, how often do you get to interview a sitting governor? There are only 50 of those at a given time, so I should see if she'll do an interview. And I assumed that it probably wouldn't happen. I assumed she would probably have security around her. It probably would be impossible to even get to her. But I thought I should at least try. So about an hour before the game, I heard that she was there. And so I walked downstairs from the press box, and she was literally standing right at the foot of the stairs by the press box with four of her kids and her husband and I think a publicist or a handler of some type. And that was it. There was no security anywhere. I walked right up to her, introduced myself, asked if she'd come on and do an interview. She said, sure. Yeah, we'll come up probably in the first inning. And she did. So yeah, that was my first ever on-air interview. And again, it's hard to imagine now because she's, she's since become such a polarizing figure. But in 2007, she was unknown in the lower 48. And in Alaska, she was massively popular. I think she had a 94% approval rating at the time. So <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never really conducted a formal interview before. So uh, it, it's, it's, it was a terrible interview, but I did the best I could with it. We had a good time and that was it. But then the team stuck that audio recording on YouTube. It probably got a couple hundred views over the next year. And then when she suddenly was named John McCain's running mate that next summer. I think it went from a couple hundred views to 250,000 or something like that in a couple days because there was this bizarre little 48 or 72 hour window right after that sudden announcement in 2008. If you remember, they kind of kept her sequestered from the media for a little while right after that. So there was a brief window of time where I was one of maybe three or four people in the entire lower 48 states who had actually interviewed her. And so that was truly bizarre. And uh, again, it just gets stranger the more time passes to me. So what was it like having that viral, that going viral experience where, I mean, you honestly almost a minor celebrity for something you're not proud of at, at the time? Yeah, I mean... It was. It was very strange. And, of course, you get all kinds of interesting comments under the YouTube video. Like, oh, this, you know, what is this kid doing? Oh, she's talking to a minor league announcer. Yeah, she's real big time. You get all these snarky little side swipes at you. And uh, obviously, if I had any idea she would become so well-known and would be thrust into such a prominent position a year later, I would have done the interview much differently. Also, again, if I had known how to conduct an actual interview, I also would have done it a lot differently. So it was what it was. It was actually kind of fun at the time. Um, but yeah, again, I'm, I'm glad that most people don't go and listen to that now because it's not, it's not my best work, but I, I did the best I could with the knowledge I had at the time. <laughs> I listened to it. It wasn't that bad. You don't give yourself enough credit. But doing an interview in a game, that's something I've never had to do. And mostly I'm 
football and a basketball broadcaster. So basketball, it's darn near impossible. You could probably get away with doing it in football, but with baseball, with kind of the slow-moving pace, it it makes it a little easier. What are some of the keys to doing a good interview inside of a broadcast? Yeah, that's a good question. It can be very tricky, and it's still tricky now, even after doing baseball for a decade. You You try not to miss too many pitches, but at the same time, Sometimes you can't control that. Uh, a lot of it depends on how savvy your guest is and how whether your guest has done games themselves before or not. Because if they have, they'll typically know not to talk over a pitch. If they can avoid it, they'll know to pause when a ball gets put in play to let you describe it. But a lot of times you get guests who aren't, aren't aware of any of that. And so you just kind of have to improvise as best you can. So... Uh, sometimes you have to physically cut them off. If, if the ball gets put in play and, and they're still talking, sometimes you have to interrupt them and, and say what's going on because fans are going to want to know. So it's not always smooth and it's, it's usually tricky. But, yeah, you have to keep an eye on the game. You have to try to be personable and engaging. But the game still comes first, and I think that's always important to keep in mind. So um, I, I know in um, – in Omaha, we do this community corner, or this community organization of the night between the second and third innings every night. But we actually do it between innings. We forego a commercial break and interview somebody who's working with a local charity. And so that's been a good way around that because we just we get them in in 90 seconds or so. And then <laughs> once the once the inning starts, we send them on their way. So that's probably a better way to do it if you can. But it's there. there's... There's no easy way of doing it, and again, a lot of it depends on how well-versed your guest is in broadcasting and whether they've done it themselves or not. Did Sarah Palin know when to shut up? <laughs> I, I can't, you know, it's been so long since I actually listened to that interview. I, I can't. I think she did. I want to say that she did stop talking when the ball got put in play. I think she was pretty savvy about that. She is a big sports fan from what, I, what I've been told, so yeah, I think she wasn't too bad. So you graduated from Occidental College in Los Angeles as a history major. What did you want to do as a history major if you hadn't have gone into broadcasting, and how did you eventually decide to go into broadcasting as a history major? That goes against the rules of questions right there, asking two in one, but I think you can do it. That's all right. Yeah, I, I always wanted to go into broadcasting. I picked history as a major initially when I transferred to Occidental College because it was the only major they had that I was remotely interested in, to be honest. Um, again, I, I wasn't planning on going there for a while. I was going to transfer either to Cal State Northridge or maybe to USC if I got accepted there because they both had great broadcast journalism schools. So I was intending to major in broadcast journalism after I got done playing in junior college. But um, then when I got recruited to go to Occidental and decided to go there, I mean, it is a great school, but it's a liberal arts school, and it's very small, about 1,800 students, I think. So they did not have any kind of broadcast journalism program at the time. Now they kind of do. They've started one. So it's a lot different going there now if you want to be a broadcaster than it was then. But they didn't have any of that when I was there. So history was the one major they had that I was interested in, so I decided to pick that. And I ended up being really absorbed by it. I really loved it. They had great professors there, a great history program. They forced you to take classes in every geographic region. So you had to take some 
Asian history, you had to take some European history, you had to take some South American history. So it was a really interesting way that their program was scheduled and it forced you to learn about a lot of different parts of the world. And so I loved it. Um, but I always wanted to be a broadcaster after I got done there. Again, I had no idea how to really do it. So uh, I'm fortunate that it worked out. But that was that was always the plan. People would always ask, oh, history major, so you want to you want to teach? No. Broadcasting? Oh, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of confused looks people would give me. But it worked out in the end. I've actually had a couple different podcast guests from around the country who have been history majors. And when you think about it at first, you think that's kind of strange. But really, when you get into it, knowing the history of a team and the history of a player and the history of somebody's performance, there really is a lot of historical emphasis in broadcasting. Do you feel like that helps you to be a good broadcaster, to have that historical background? Absolutely. And I think the other way that majoring in history really helps you as a broadcaster that people don't think about is that when you're a history major, pretty much all you're doing is researching and writing papers. So being a history major teaches you how to research. It teaches you how to find information and find the backstory of whatever it is that you're assigned to find out about. Because when you start, when you're given a, a history assignment, and if you're going to write a paper on something, you start from scratch, and you gotta, you've got to go to the library and figure out what books to check out or where to look for this information, what database to comb through, what, uh, what search terms to enter into Google. You have to go figure out, first of all, how to find the information, and then find it, and then assemble it into something that's cohesive and coherent and that will read well on a page or sound good when you're going to give a presentation on it. And that's really a lot of, as you know, Logan, that's a lot of what you do when you get ready to call a game. You want to find out about those teams, those players, those coaches, what are their backstories, are there any interesting, any interesting um, anecdotes or human interest stories that any of them have? What are these two teams? What kind of trajectory on these, are these two teams on? Yeah, what is the history of these two programs? Have they met in the past? Have they been memorable games? It's a lot of the same principles, even though you're not you're not necessarily writing many papers anymore. But the research aspect, that was where I learned how to do all that. So it was very valuable in that regard. And yeah, just having an appreciation for history, I think it, it makes you much wiser and able to talk more intelligently about anything, which is always a good thing when you're a broadcaster. So you mentioned you went into broadcasting without knowing how to do it. You just kind of floundered around until you figured it out. At what point did you find a mentor who could tell you what you were doing wrong and get better? Because you're not going to make it to the AAA level without being able to have somebody give you, uh, you know, real feedback and help you to, to to learn what you're doing, so to speak. Yeah, I think... There were a number of them. The first person that I ever sent uh, a recording to, I think, was Doug Greenwald, who's the voice of the Fresno Grizzlies. And Fresno is about 45 minutes up the road from Visalia, so he was the first guy I reached out to. And he was very helpful. Um, but the things that I had to work on initially were so basic. I remember Doug saying, hey, you should probably give the score more than twice an inning, which made sense, but 
Nobody had ever told me that. Oh, yeah, I guess I should give the score really often because people are tuning in and out all the time. This this had never been explained to me before. Hey, when when the ball's hit to an infielder, you should probably identify who that is each time. Or you, just, just very basic things that it just hadn't occurred to me because I had never taken any kind of classes or had any mentors in it. So, yeah, Doug was very nice. Um, and from there, I was able to even though I, I came out of school with zero broadcasting network, I was at least smart enough at that age to recognize that I needed to build one and that I would have to build it from scratch since I didn't go to a Syracuse or a Northwestern. I didn't have this built-in network of alumni that I could draw from. So I realized early on that although there were a lot of geographic disadvantages to being in Visalia because Visalia is a tiny little town it's a non-existent media market. There's no other media around except up in Fresno who have their own people and their own AAA team and their own school. So it's not a great place of, of broadcasting opportunity. But the one geographic advantage it has is it's right in the middle of California. And I realize it's right in the middle of five different major league teams. And so I used a lot of my off days during the baseball season each year to drive to different big league ballparks and meet big league broadcasters. And I worked really hard at doing that. And I was slowly able to build relationships with a number of them. So that was kind of how I built my network. And it was a lot of, it was a lot of driving and it was a lot of tiredness, especially on those few off days you get during a baseball season. But I knew nobody was going to come to Visalia to find me. I was going to have to reach out and, and be proactive to go meet them. So Jerry Howarth in Toronto, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, he was one of those who was incredibly nice to me early on, incredibly helpful, uh, really liked me and believed in me, and he helped me a, a lot. Eric Nadell with the Rangers has always been great. Um, Ken Korak with the A's has been tremendous. John Miller with the Giants, Dave Fleming, they're such a great broadcast team. They've both been incredibly nice to me. Dave Fleming actually started in Visalia, too, so we had that connection. Um so there have been there have been so many of them uh, who've been incredibly nice to me. Um, so yeah, it's it's I'm really grateful to to everybody who's who's helped me along the way so far. So how did you go about meeting these people? Did you just email them and hope they said yes? Did you stand outside of their of the stadium where you knew they were going to go in until they showed up and just kind of throw yourself in the way? How did you go about finding these people and getting into a situation where you were able to meet? I'm trying to think now. It, sometimes it's hard to remember how you actually got into those spots. I think, like anything else, it was tough at first, and then it got easier from there once you once you gained a couple of contacts who could help you gain more. So I remember the way I got in to meet Jerry Howarth. It was in Anaheim when they were in town to play the Angels. Rance Mullenix, who was a former Blue Jays great, was actually part of the 92 championship team, and at the time in the late aughts, early 2010s, he was actually part of the Jays TV broadcast team. He would do about 40 or 50 games with them. Typically when they came out West, he would be part of their TSN broadcast as a color analyst, but he lived in Visalia. He was from there. So he would, he was always in Visalia when he wasn't off broadcasting for the Blue Jays. So somebody introduced me to him and we struck up a, a friendship. And so he was the one that got me a press pass for when the Jays came to Anaheim to play the Angels that year. And so that was how I was able to meet Jerry. 
and really, as I think about it, Jerry Howarth was the guy who opened up a lot of the rest of it for me from there because he was so nice and he thought so highly of me for whatever reason that he he, he would help me reach out to and, and make contact with other broadcasters who were going to come out west. And so um, that was how I was able to, to make contact with them and get press credentials for games and, and then eventually meet them and develop relationships with them. So, yeah, Jerry Howarth and Rance Mullenix are kind of the two people that that helped me start that. So we've kind of danced around this a little bit, but your first kind of big break in baseball was getting with the, the Visalia Rawhide. I believe that was a single A affiliated team for the Diamondbacks. How did that come about? And did you think you would be there as long as you were once you, once you started? Well, it came about because after... So, so I went to Alaska in the summer of 2007. That was going into my senior season or my senior year of college. And then during the winter of my senior year, I had made a demo CD from that summer in Alaska, which, of course, in hindsight was terrible. But, hey, uh, it worked. So I, uh, I just spammed every, every minor league team from A ball and below. A lot of people don't realize how many minor league teams there are, but just from A ball down through – there's high A, low A, there's two levels of, of short season rookie ball. So there were about 70 plus teams that I sent applications to just at those lower levels. Not really applications, but just, hey, here's my, my CD, here's a cover letter. I'm hoping to become a minor league broadcaster with somebody this coming year. Hope it can be you. Hope if you have an opening, we'd love to talk. I don't know. I didn't know what to say. Again, I had no idea how to go about this. I just knew. I would have no chance if I didn't put myself out there in some way. So, yeah, I spent hours during the winter break that year just typing up cover letters, putting together CD packets, and going to the post office every time I had another 10 or 12 of them ready to, to mass mail out. And I got two response. Well, I got one response initially, and that was from a, a team in Hagerstown, Maryland. Interviewed with them for their number two job. They initially offered it to me, but told me to think about it for a week, and then they told me they'd found somebody else, and so that was kind of confusing. So that was disappointing. Uh, but then on Easter Sunday of all days, Visalia called me out of the blue. I had included my cell phone number and all these cover letters I was sending out, so I got a, I got a voicemail from their, their owner and general manager saying that they just had a broadcaster quit, and... Wondered if I would come up and interview in the next couple days. So I think I drove up maybe three days after that to interview. And they were willing to wait for me to graduate from college that May. So they offered me the gig a couple days after I interviewed. I came on as the number two broadcaster. But the lead guy there, Dan Besbris, who I'm still great friends with, he was, everybody knew, he knew he was leaving after that season because his girlfriend was going to go to med school in Michigan. He was going to move out there to stay close to her. So yeah, I was able to literally two days after my last college final, I moved up to Visalia and was able to go start my broadcasting career right away. And I knew if I didn't screw up too badly, I would become their lead broadcaster the next year. So it was a really, it was a really fortunate break. No question. Now, as to the second part of your question, did I expect to be there for eight years? No, no, I did not. That was not the plan at all. <laughs> so 
of course, like any any kid just out of college, you have that certain amount of arrogance to you, and you think, well, now I'll be here maybe one or two years, and then I'll and then I'll move on. My my triumphant march of, of victory will continue very shortly. And uh, yeah, that's not how it worked out at all. Um, but first of all, Visalia is a fantastic town. It's really underrated, and in a lot of ways, I miss it quite a bit. I, I made a lot of great friends there and grew to really fiercely love that town. It's an underdog town. It gets overlooked and passed over and disrespected a lot by people who have never been there in their lives. If they actually went there, they'd find out it's pretty great. It's right at the foot of the Sequoia Mountains. It's within an hour and a half of the ocean. It's within three hours of San Francisco, three hours of L.A. Anywhere you want to be, you can drive there easily. It's a great location, and uh, it's a really historic ballpark that's a great place to watch a game so i loved it a lot but i certainly did not intend to be there eight years and i finished runner-up for four higher level jobs while i was there and that was um, more frustrating every time i finished second but uh, you know it worked out so uh, and it's still a place that i miss a lot so in one of the articles i read about you it said you did over 1000 games there and I just want to know, do you have like a bedpost with a whole bunch of like little notches that you scraped in with a knife to count to 1,000? How did you keep track of how many games you did? I really didn't. I don't, I don't have an exact count of how many games I did there, but there are 140 games in a minor league season, so it's kind of simple math at a certain point. You figure you, you're definitely over 1,000 now. How far over 1,000 I was, I, I don't exactly know, but yeah, it was definitely... Definitely more than a thousand. So you were there long enough that you were literally able to write the book on the Visalia Rawhide because you wrote a book on the Visalia Rawhide. What went into the decision to write a book about the team you were covering? Uh, yeah, I was. I was afraid people wouldn't think I was a big enough nerd, so I had to make sure they knew. Yeah, I. Uh, well, being a history major, when I got to Visalia. I quickly realized that this team had been around since the 1940s and that nobody had ever really collected their history and put it together. And I, I also realized that they'd had all these great players that had come through there, either playing for their team or playing against them. I, I realized that um, baseball itself, as I started to dig into it more, I, I found that baseball itself had a really colorful and interesting history in Visalia going back to the 1870s, and nobody was really talking about it. Nobody really knew about it, which bothered me both from just, um, just on principle, being a history enthusiast, but I also realized that the team itself had been in a tough spot for a long time. They had been on the verge of moving for about 20 years prior to that. Now, when I got there, they were finally renovating the ballpark decades after it really needed to be done. And so that was that had assured that the, the team would be staying in Visalia. But the place had been so run down for so long, attendance had really fallen off. And so a lot of what we were doing in Visalia was trying to resurrect this franchise and make it a part of the town's community life again, make it a part of the discourse, make it a part of the civic consciousness, because that really hadn't been the case for a while. And 
I felt that part of the problem was that a lot of people just didn't realize how much a part of the community this team had been in the past. A lot of people had really forgotten about that. And that's what happens when you when you don't celebrate the history of something, people don't appreciate the role that it's played in the past and that it could play again in the future. So I came to see bringing our history to light, not just as some sort of nerdy enterprise, but as a really important part of our marketing and our branding going forward as we opened this new renovated ballpark as we changed the name of the team. It was actually the Visalia Oaks when we got there, and then they changed it to uh, to the Rawhide because of the the town's cattle and dairy, a uh, big part of the cattle and dairy industry in Central California, which a lot of people don't realize. But anyway, so they're changing the team name. They're opening this new renovated ballpark, but they needed to reconnect with the community and making the community realize what a part of the fabric of the town, this franchise and the baseball in general had been for over a century was a big part of sort of rebranding the team. And so that was, that was a big part of the decision to write the book. It was just a way to collect all of these things that I had dug up and found over the previous couple of years and put it together in a, in a accessible, tangible way so that people could visually see all right, here's a here's a team from the 1870s. Here's the first team in our franchise's history in 1946. This has been here. This is a part of this town. This is something that we need to cherish and preserve and continue to grow and protect as we go forward. So I really enjoyed it. I'd always wanted to write a book, and uh, so I, I got to do it, and it was a lot of fun. Did you write it for yourself, or was it a project that the team put you up to do? And I guess... I mean, did you sell a lot of copies, and uh, did was would you consider it a successful project? <laughs> yeah, the team kind of commissioned me to do it. It was sort of both of our ideas. I think both myself and our general manager both thought it was something that needed to happen after a couple of years of digging up all these cool photos and stories. We realized we needed to put it together. So I don't know how many copies it sold. There, it sold a fair amount. People enjoyed it. We sold it in the in the team. In the team shop, we give out copies at service club appearances sometimes. So it found its way around around town and around the area pretty well. It had a um, we worked with a, a good local graphic designer who made a really nice cover and layout for it. So it turned out to it turned out really well. I was very happy with it. Obviously, with anything like that, there are things that you look back on now and you say, "Yeah, I probably would have changed that sentence or that phrase, or maybe I would have included this picture instead." But other than those little nitpicky things that you could always go back and forth on, I'm really happy with how it turned out, and I'm, I'm proud that we were able to pull all that stuff together. And I had help doing it, too, from other staff members, which I was really grateful for. So going from Visalia to Omaha, describe how that process took place, how you found the break after finishing second four times to eventually you know, get that higher-level job that you were looking for. Yeah. Yeah, it happened really, really quickly and kind of unexpectedly, which is, I guess that's how it goes a lot of times with stuff like this. But they posted the job in early February. And it was for, a, as you said earlier, it's for their number two broadcaster to work with Mark Nasser, who's been here since 2001. And in the past, I hadn't really been that interested in number two jobs because typically 
you see some guys that come out of college and they're fortunate to get a number two job in AAA, but then a lot of times they go back down to A ball or AA to become a number one broadcaster down there so that they can get the reps and really build up their, you know, build their skill and get more experience doing a lot more innings every night. But I had gotten to a point where I just felt like I was out of new things to try and, and ways to grow professionally in Visalia. As much as I loved the town and really didn't want to leave it emotionally, and as much as I loved the team and the organization uh, and was really passionate about them and continuing to help them improve, I just felt that I was going to have to move to a bigger market and test myself somewhere else if I was going to have a chance of reaching what I felt my full potential was. So um, the, the job was posted in early February. I decided to apply for it. I didn't know what would happen. Ended up interviewing a couple weeks later, then had a second interview. And they offered me the job the week before I was going to leave for spring training. So I uh, accepted the job. Then I was out at spring training for a month, came back to Visalia for about 24 hours to pack everything up, and then drove out to Omaha right before the start of last season. So it was a, it was stressful and scary, and it was a big risk because I left a, a full-time job. with It didn't pay tremendously, but it also included free housing, included healthcare, gym membership, lots of little perks that were nice. I just got a nice raise going into that year. So I was leaving a fairly stable situation, albeit not at the level I ultimately would like to be at. But I was leaving all that for a seasonal job that had no guarantee of a, of a full-time position, no benefits, and not really knowing what I was going to do after that season. But I decided if there was if there was a time in my life to take a gamble like that, to take a chance like that, that this was it. And if and I realized if I didn't do this now, I would always wonder. And I just didn't want to live with that. So I decided to take the to take the leap and it's worked out incredibly well so far. All right. So when I was doing my research on you, I found uh, your voiceover page where it had the different voices that you that you kind of market yourself as being able to do. And what I want you to do is answer the next couple questions in the voice that I give you. Are, are you okay with that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how well that's going to go, but we'll give it a shot. All right. So the next question is going to be with your nerdy, smart, slash knowledgeable voice. Well, maybe that would be something a little bit like this. That's more sort of low-key, almost like you're whispering into the microphone. I'm sort of talking into my computer screen right now, so it's hard to be right up on the mic the way I normally would be when I do this kind of job, but I talk a little faster and a little quieter. It's like more, sort of more intimate, but also more uh, just like you're you're really excited about this information that you've been researching. And some companies really want that, like especially tech companies, companies like that. So uh, some some people like that, and so this is kind of that voice, I guess. So now the next question I'm going to ask you is about Vin Scully and his influence on you. And you said that when he was still broadcasting, obviously he's retired, you went out of your way to avoid listening to his call because you didn't want to end up becoming a Vin Scully clone. So answer that question in your nerdy, smart voice. <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard. Well, actually, 
It's hard. You don't really have to do it if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for me to think of what I want to say to that and, and put on that voice at the same time. You can imagine me saying it in that voice I just used a second ago. Yeah, you're right. I did, um, I, I did make a conscious decision after I started broadcasting to stop listening to Vin because you hear a lot of broadcasters who grew up in Southern California who grew up with Vin who do kind of sound a lot like Vin Scully. And I have little, if you listen closely enough, you'll hear little things probably in the way I call a baseball game that you can probably identify as, yeah, that's, that's sort of a little Vinism there. But I try to avoid them because obviously there's only one Vin Scully. And if you end up just sounding like Vin, nobody really wants or needs that. And there are some broadcasters in the past who I think have fallen into that, so I didn't want to be one of those. So yeah, I, I stopped listening to Vin as hard as that was because I'd listened to him my whole life. Really wasn't until last year, his his final season, that I I started listening to Dodger games or watching Dodger games regularly for the last month of the season, his final month. But yeah, that was it was the right decision though because you really become who you listen to in a lot of ways, especially me. I'm very imitative. So if I listen to a certain broadcaster for a long time, I'll end up picking up a lot of their mannerisms for better or worse. And certainly with Vin, his mannerisms are fantastic, but I wanted to make sure that I, I didn't just sound like him. So you mentioned that Visalia was a cattle and dairy agricultural type of place in central California. Now you live in Omaha, which is kind of the cattle central of the United States in many ways. Who has the better steak? And I want you to say this in your humorous, snarky, quirky voice. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, out here, I haven't really had too many. The steakhouses out here are really expensive. They're really good from what I hear. I just haven't been able to justify going into one of them yet. So, I mean, I've had, I've had the ground beef out here. It's very good. Central California's ground beef is very good also. Um, I don't know whose is better, honestly. But uh, they both have their strengths, strengths and weaknesses, I guess. California's better with grass-fed beef. There's more of that out there. Since I'm a California sort of health nerd, I appreciated that. You can still find it out here. It's just not how they typically raise cattle out here. So, eh, six of one, half dozen of the other. So how did you get into the voiceover business? I just found that a very interesting you know, sidebar into what you did in your career did you start your own voiceover business? Do you work for somebody else? How did that process happen? Yeah, I started my own business. And honestly, you know, I do funny voices, but most, most voiceover work I do is just talking like myself. That's really your best marketing tool. If you have a, if you have a voice that's halfway okay, even if you have a voice that's not even that great, but is at least unique, just as with broadcasting, most of the time you're not you're not pretending to be somebody else. You're just speaking as yourself. So that's most of the projects I do. I'm just talking normally just so that people know. But yeah, I, I knew I'd always wanted to get into it. I just like with broadcasting, I had no idea how to go about it. So I knew that in taking this job in Omaha that didn't have any guarantee of full-time employment after the season, I knew I would have to do it. It would force me to. So that was part of my reasoning for, for taking the leap. And so after I got out here and got settled in my apartment, I started, because I didn't have to be at the ballpark anymore until 
three o'clock in the afternoon or so for a seven o'clock game. And Visalia, I was working full time doing sales and marketing and updating the website and keeping track of our history. And I, I was at the ballpark for 14, 15 hours a day when we were at home, seven or eight days in a row during a homestand. And then I'd go on the road with the team. And so it was completely all consuming. So I just didn't have the time or the energy to pursue voiceover work or figure out how to how to get into that. But I knew I would out here for better or worse. So I immediately set up, I took everything out of a, a little closet in my apartment and I lined the walls with a, with a blanket, turned it into a little recording space and, and then started, I had actually recorded my commercial voiceover demo back in January before I knew I was going to come to Omaha. I just decided it was time to record a demo and just see what I could do with that. So I was fortunate I already had that. So I started posting my demo to different freelance websites and ended up getting a really good response really quickly. People started hiring me for stuff. And a lot of these sites, when you build your profile, when when you start getting hired for jobs and you get good ratings and reviews, then your profile grows and it gets more visible and it, it generates more traffic and more visitors. And so you get more orders. And so it's kind of grown from there. And it's it's done a lot better a lot sooner than I than I thought it would. So I'm really grateful and I really enjoy running my own business uh, as much as I learned a lot from doing sales for eight years. And I still kind of do sales now because you still have to market yourself constantly. But I get to keep 100 percent of the commission instead of five percent, which is pretty nice. And I like the I like the energy and the drive that being my own boss and running my own business and coming up with ideas and ways to try to expand and grow. I, I, I really enjoy all of that. I didn't know if I would, but I do. So uh, I'm really fortunate it's worked out the way it has so far. And who knows how it'll go in the future. It's when you run your own business, you can't, you can't slack off. You gotta, you gotta keep grinding and keep pushing to make sure that if you're having some success that it continues. Um, so we'll see where it goes. I'm not making any grand proclamations or predictions but again really grateful for how it's turned out so far how do you pick your projects when it comes to doing voiceover work do you just take whatever comes in or do you pick and choose i mean usually i'll take whatever comes in as long as every now and then you'll get a bizarre script that you say, I don't, I say do you know I, what's about to come next yeah <laughs> there, there have been a i've had maybe four or five scripts that have come in out of a few thousand over the last couple of years where I've said, um, yeah, I'm not going to do this one. <laughs> this is not something I want to be associated with. But most of it is just very mundane, run-of-the-mill stuff. It, again, people people tend to think that, oh, voiceover works. You're doing really cool national commercials. Well, voiceover is a lot like broadcasting or any other venture where you have a handful of people that are at the very top that are visible and maybe in, in the industry, everybody knows who those people are. But the vast majority of hardworking professionals who are actually making a pretty solid living are well below that waterline. It's like an iceberg, you know, where only the top however many percent are visible and the rest of it, the vast majority of it is below the surface and you don't really see it. That's kind of how the voiceover world is. So, yeah, there are some people like Don LaFontaine, the, you know, the former movie trailer guy. Everybody knew who he was. People that do the trailers, that do the national commercials. But there are only a few of those people. And there are thousands of other people that 
just record like I do, who record a lot of, I've recorded tons of company phone greetings for their voicemail system. I've recorded lots of YouTube explainer videos, product videos. Um, How about the audio books? Yeah, I've done a handful of those. How how about the kick your fat in the nuts audio book? Yeah, that was about four years ago. That's true. I did kind of get into voiceover a little bit through doing audiobooks several years ago. That was sort of an off-season project. And yeah, I had to do some really, I had to do some uh, some titles that certainly didn't sell very well um, just to do them and just to get experience and figure out if this was something I could do and if I wanted to do. But I don't, I don't do that many audiobooks anymore because I'm still open to doing them, but most of those don't pay all that well, and it's a lot of work to record an entire audiobook and to process it and to master it and make sure there are no pops and clicks and mouth noises in it, make sure there are no annoying breaths in it. It's a lot of work to produce an audiobook, whereas recording short one- or two-minute YouTube explainer videos typically a lot easier. So that's that's what I do most of the time now. But, yeah, it's you don't realize how many things need voices for them until you get into it. And then once you're into it, you start noticing it everywhere. So you'd be sitting in the grocery store and you hear a recording over the PA system, or you'll be listening to the radio and you'll hear a random commercial and you think, I wonder who did that. Huh? That's an interesting voice. So, yeah. So you had an article that you were quoted that I'm, I didn't write down the quote. I probably should have, but it was something to the effect of you have, what you would consider a California style and could, that is kind of mimicked, not mimicked, but inspired by the Vin Scully's, the Ken Corax, the Dave Flemings of the world. And that you, I'm sure you didn't know you were going to Omaha at this time, but you weren't a big fan of what you referred to as the Midwestern style, the Harry Carey's, the Hawk Harrelson's. And now you are in the Midwest. How does your California style get um do people like it in the midwest i mean from what they tell me if if they don't they they haven't had the courage to tell me that to my face so far so <laughs> from what i've heard they seem to like it okay yeah i and as i said in that article that you referenced i certainly have great respect for the harry carries and the hawk harrelsons of the world anybody who's made it in broadcasting one way or the other it's not easy to do so power to them but yeah in terms of style um, I forget who it was who pointed it out. It might have been Al Michaels in a, in a podcast interview when I heard him a few years ago talking about this. I think that's who it was. He pointed out that when you worked in California, because Al Michaels was in San Francisco for a while before he became a national voice, when you work in California, there are so many transplants and people from other parts of the country that California play-by-play guys, whether they were in San Francisco or L.A. or San Diego, they quickly realized that they couldn't be too big of a homer for their team because there were probably fans of other teams listening at any given time because there were so many of them in California. And so you really couldn't get away with being totally in the bag and totally biased and one-sided for the team you were working for because you would alienate, alienate a lot of your listeners. And so... I think that's why, that's why he feels anyway, a lot of California play-by-play guys have developed a a more down-the-middle style. It's not that you don't act excited when your team does something good, those guys all do, but it's not quite as much of an over-the-top thing as 
um, I think broadcasters in towns like Chicago or maybe St. Louis or even some East Coast cities have typically had. So, yeah, it's a different culture. It's a different style. And it is interesting because I find that people, not just broadcasters, but fans from different parts of the country really like different things. But, um, yeah, so far it's it's gone okay in Omaha, knock on wood. So minor league baseball is notorious for having, you know, baseball is important, but putting on a show and having fun promotions is almost as important in many respects. What are some of the unique promotions that you've been a part of, or if you haven't directly been a part of, that your team has been a part of that stand out? Well, in Visalia, we had the helicopter candy drop, which I think a couple other teams do now. And we were the second team in the country to do it. So once a year after the game was over, we would we would clear the field. We'd have a helicopter fly over and hover over over the field and drop about 500 pounds of candy on it. And then the helicopter would clear the area, and we'd let all the kids run onto the field and pick up as much candy as they could. So that process would take about – once the kids were released, it took about 60 seconds for all the candy to be gone. It was like watching a bunch of piranhas swarm a – you know, a carcass in the middle of a river on National Geographic. It was pretty funny to watch from the press box. Do you so feel we, like you're teaching kids to take candy from strangers when you do that? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's the best social training necessarily, but they certainly had a good time. So, yeah, we did that every year in Visalia. We had a ballpark wedding every year for several years. So that was always interesting. We would take applications for who should who should get a free wedding at the ballpark at home plate before a game every year i'm trying to think what else we've had i mean omaha puts on a ton of great promotions too we had mr belding out at a game this last year which was which was fun i got to interview him on the pregame show oh yeah there's always fun stuff going on people people tend to sort of especially national writers, I feel like sometimes look down on minor league baseball for their, their wacky, zany promotions, all those crazy minor league people. But then I always point out that most of the promotions you see big league teams doing are things that minor league teams initially had the idea for, and then big league teams looked at that and said, oh, that's a really good idea. We should do that too. Most most promotions come up through the minor leagues just like the players do. So there's a lot of innovation in the minor leagues. And not every promotion is great. Not every promotion is necessarily in great taste. Not every promotion works. But what's fun about minor league baseball is there's a, a constant willingness to try stuff and to throw stuff out and see if it works and to be innovative and be a little daring and to push the envelope a little bit. And it's it's a mindset that is... Um, very much a part of being in the minor league industry that you almost have to have. And so that's that's fun. We would sit around as a staff in Visalia after one season ended, and we'd sit around for an entire day and just brainstorm and spitball ideas. What kind of, what kind of promotions could we think up and do for the next year? And we'd fill out our, our entire promotional calendar for the following season in one or two all-afternoon sessions. And it was a lot of fun. So that's part of... That's part of what's enjoyable about working in minor league baseball. There are a lot of long hours, a lot of uh, a crushing amount of work at times, but it can be truly fun too. So what I hear being outside of kind of the baseball community as more of a 
football and basketball broadcaster is I try to go to a lot of seminars and stuff to build uh, build those connections and get to know people. In baseball, you hear about the winter meetings all the time. Do you go to the winter meetings and how important are they to your career and I guess what happens at them? Yeah, I haven't gone the last few years. I did go my first several years when I was in Visalia. Um, yeah, I think especially when you're younger, it's it's a very good thing to to attend because there are so many people and so many potential decision makers there. So it is good to go and try to meet as many people as you can, whether it's other broadcasters or if you run into some general managers and you're able to introduce yourself to them and strike up a conversation with them, that's always good. It never hurts to know as many people in the industry as you possibly can. There are there are a lot of things that go on in the winter meetings. There, there's the minor league side and there's the major league side. So obviously all the major league teams, they have, they have meetings of different committees. They have general managers meetings. They have the league managers meetings. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. But on the minor league side, there's what they call the Bob Freitas Business Seminar, where they have a, a number of different speakers and presentations every year about best practices, what what promotional ideas different teams are coming up with. They have a number of different unique topics every year that they come up with and that people from different minor league teams will come and, and present on, things that they're doing in their town, things that they've had success with. So there's a, there's sort of a seminar aspect to it. There's a couple of galas or dinners where the people are honored. So it, it's your typical convention type stuff and a lot of, a lot of networking. Um, a lot of imbibing too, if you're into that. <laughs> so uh, there are always there are always some people that uh, uh, that get up to some shenanigans at the winter meetings. You try to you try to stay away from that. My first year actually in 2008, the winter meetings were in Las Vegas, which was really not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> they, they, I don't think the winter meetings will ever go back to Las Vegas. Let's put it that way, because it, it really. Uh, I, I think they realized that was probably not the best plan they'd ever had. So they've not been back since. I doubt they ever will be. But it was interesting to see that. And uh, so, yeah, you meet as many people as you can. I actually got to present at the winter meetings one year, which was a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, the more networking you can do is, is always good, especially when you're just starting out and don't know that many people in the industry. What did you present on? It was actually... I think the year after I, I wrote the book, I presented on how history can enhance your team's brand. Because I, I do really feel strongly about that. Because minor league baseball teams in particular are so forward-looking and forward-thinking, and they're always trying to innovate and figure out what new cool promotional thing they could do or what new idea they can have or how can they improve their concessions operations? How can they improve their front office? Again, it's it's this constant improvement mindset and looking to the future mindset, which is great. And it's one of the real strengths of the minor league industry. But I think sometimes minor league teams don't realize that celebrating the history of baseball in your area or your team's history can really enhance how you're perceived in your community. And it can enhance, it can be a big part of branding your club as being a part of your town's tradition and heritage. Um, I think you need to do both. You need to look to the to, you need to look forward and you need to celebrate the past. And some teams, 
because they've only been around 10 or 20 years, they think, well, we don't have any history to celebrate here. But most of them do because baseball goes way back almost everywhere in the country. So if you look hard enough, uh, this is part of what I said in the presentation, you look hard enough, you can find great high school teams that maybe had future major leaguers on it. Are there great players that maybe came out of your town? Um, are there previous minor league teams that used to exist and then folded, but maybe they had some, you know, there are some cool pictures you can dig up from there. All you need is a handful of nice black and white pictures that you can show off, showcase at your ballpark, show in your service club presentations. You have to be able to show people. You can't just say, oh, baseball goes way back or we've been here since 19 whatever. You have to show them with pictures and let them experience it and see it. And when people, even when people don't like baseball or don't like football, whatever sport you're working in, they don't like your sport, show them a black and white photo of one of your teams from the 1920s or any team from your local area in the 1930s. And almost universally, they will look at it and say, wow, that's really cool. People like history. They just don't realize they do. You have to show it to them. And once you do and you find a way to connect that to your team and what you're doing now, you make yourself a continuation and an extension of their town's heritage and history, suddenly they care about you a lot more. And they, they want to see you succeed a lot more than they previously did. And we saw that in Visalia. Once we were able to make that connection and and show people the history that baseball had in that area, people saw us in a different light. And I think a lot of a lot of teams could take advantage of that. And I've seen more teams start to do that over the last several years, which has been fun to watch. But I think some people still think history is just this, it's for old people and eccentric hobbyists. And I love old people and eccentric hobbyists, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more powerful than people realize. So one of the fun parts that I would imagine of being part of minor league baseball is you get to see people that eventually turn into major league players, all-stars, Hall of Famers on their way up when nobody else knows about them. Who are a couple of the players who fit that description for you? Well, the biggest one was Paul Goldschmidt. We had him in Visalia in 2010, and it's hard to believe now because he's, he's been an MVP candidate for several years. He might finally win it this year. I hope he does. People didn't, people didn't buy into him at all. Like the, national, the national press, the, the scouting gurus, the prospect gurus, nobody thought Paul Goldschmidt was a, a legitimate prospect for a long time. Even though he had hit a bunch of home runs the previous year in rookie ball, even though when he was with us he hit 35 homers and was the league MVP, people just said, well, it's the Cal League. The Cal League's really a, a hitter-friendly league. He strikes out too much. He's not going to do anything. Maybe, maybe he'll be an off-the-bench guy at the big league level, maybe. But, and, and another thing people said was, well, he can't, he's not a good defender. People who had seen him in college in his first year of pro ball said, so, well, he's really shaky at first base. He's not going to be a good enough defender to play every day. But when you were around him every day in Visalia, you realized that he had an incredible work ethic, which is cliche to say, but, man, he was on... He was on another level. He would show up at noon when it was 100 degrees out in the middle of summer, and he would spend hours taking, practicing his picks at first base, practicing his ground balls. He was the guy that was willing to work on the aspects of his game where he knew he was weak. And so many players, especially young players, aren't willing to do that. We had, a, we had other big-name prospects, first-round draft picks, which Goldschmidt was not. 
we had, we had a, another first round prospect that I won't name, but he was very talented as a hitter, but he was also initially a terrible defender and he wouldn't work on it. He had no desire to work on his defense. Well, Goldschmidt did. And so this other first rounder never made it, washed out very quickly. Paul Goldschmidt, he got better and better as that year went on. And the next year, less than a year later, he was in the big leagues, hitting home runs and playing gold glove caliber defense. And he's won multiple gold gloves now. So I, I, I feel I always take Goldsmith a little personally because I was defending him and telling people that he was going to be really good before a lot of other people believed it. Just because I was seeing the work he was putting in every day at a level that hardly anybody else was. So. Uh, I haven't been right about everybody, but I was definitely right about him. So I've really enjoyed following his career and uh, occasionally reminding people how right I was about him. (laughs) You know, that's an interesting statement, the working on your weaknesses. And Mm -hmm. that can apply to, you know, really anything in life, not just baseball. Do you feel that way? Do you work on your weaknesses when it comes to sportscasting? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely try to. Absolutely. I've gotten, it's kind of a rant, it seems like a random aside, but I've kind of gotten into mixed martial arts lately. Not that I can do any of them and not that I really, not that I really love watching the fights themselves, but this, the concept of it really fascinates me. And I, I enjoy watching MMA fighters train. I like watching videos of their training regimes and how they, because if you're, if you're fighting in mixed martial arts, you have to be good at so many different things and you have to at least be proficient, at least be able to defend against so many different styles because people can use any kind of martial arts style to come against you and you can use any kind of style against them. And so that, that attitude of having to learn almost everything, I really enjoy that. Because that's kind of how I feel. I want to be good at everything. Obviously, that's a lifelong pursuit, and you never fully get there. But that's part of the challenge. That's part of what's engaging about it. So I I had always wanted to do basketball, for example. I didn't get to do a lot of that in Central California. So now getting to do some women's basketball out here with the University of Nebraska-Omaha, that's been a lot of fun. Because I wasn't that strong at basketball. I had maybe the the foundational broadcasting ability to do it, but I just haven't had the reps that I wanted. So I got a lot better at that last year. Um, I I had to work really hard in baseball my first couple of years, just learning how to inflect in key moments. I had a very sort of monotone voice at first, and I didn't know how to command it at all and try to use it like an instrument. I I had to physically learn how to do that I took a, a number of voice lessons just to learn how to mechanically use my voice. Where, what part of my throat or my diaphragm or my where was I supposed to actually talk from? Like these are things that nobody, these are things that nobody teaches you initially, or at least they didn't teach me. That I had to to learn with some help from a number of people, and then and then work on over a number of years. So, yeah, I always try to find things to work on each season, each game if I can. Sometimes I'll write down certain certain things I want to work on that day. Sometimes I'll write down if I feel like I've gotten a little stale with my descriptions, if I feel like I'm leaning on the same crutch phrases too much, I'll try to write out a couple alternate phrases that I've heard somebody else use, and I'll see if I can work that into a game on a given night. So yeah, you always want to be trying new things. You always want to be growing. You, you don't want to get 
stuck in a repetitive pattern where you're just describing a game the same way, using the same words every night, and just becoming comfortable being the same broadcaster all the time. You have to be getting better all the time, and that should always be your mindset. We've gone on for a long time about a lot of different things, and these will be the last couple questions for you, I promise. But uh, one of the things I always find interesting in everybody's story is some of what I call the broadcast horror stories. And from what I hear of other people who do minor league baseball, a lot of them involve broken down buses in weird places or really bad hotel rooms. (laughs) <laughs> what are what are your two what are your stories in those two particular fields? I was fortunate in that we never had a full on bus breakdown in my eight years in the Cal League. We might have come close a couple of times. Now, I think the closest thing we had to that was one time when we were going just from Visalia to Bakersfield, which fortunately wasn't that far. It's about an hour and fifteen minutes. It was actually a commuter trip where we would. Our players would get dressed and we'd get on the bus. They would dress in their uniforms. We'd get on the bus, ride an hour and 15, get off the bus in Bakersfield, which was a terrible, dilapidated, rundown ballpark. The staff there did a great job. They did the best they could with it, but it was still a very rundown park and not a great place to play. So we'd roll up sometimes at 5.30 for a 7 o'clock game and just show and go and then get right back on the bus afterward and come back. But one time... In July, when it was 110 degrees out, the the bus worked, but the AC didn't. And so that was one of the most unpleasant 75-minute bus rides I've ever had. You had about 30 people, most of them shirtless. They'd all taken off their shirts to try to stay somewhat cool. Everybody sweating profusely, jammed into a bus. That was, that was not enjoyable. Um, I think the worst road trip that I encountered in eight years was believe in 2014, we had a week-long trip where we went to the two desert cities in the Cal League, which are Lancaster and High Desert. Now, High Desert folded. Well, yeah, they technically folded last year, and then the franchise was relocated. So they're not in the league anymore. But when I was there, you had Lancaster and High Desert. Lancaster's a nice ballpark, but it's on the edge of the Mojave Desert. It's really hot, really windy. So we were there for four days, and then we were in high desert, I think, for three. Those are two really tough places to call games. Lancaster, because the wind always howls straight out there, so games are typically very high scoring. Both parks, they were very high scoring. The ball flies, lots of home runs, massive ballparks to try to um, compensate for the, the way the ball carries. So balls would find the gap really easily little shallow pop flies that would normally be caught would fall in because the outfielders have so much more ground to cover so games would just be crazy out of control at both those parks they would be long they would be high scoring and they were just very exhausting to do on top of that we in that seven game road trip we lost each of the first six games by one run i mean we found every possible way to lose a game (laughs) for six straight days by one single run each time. So everybody was kind of on edge at that point. Also, my radio equipment was failing. The power cord for my, I think I was using a a red box at the time. So the unit that, for people that don't work in broadcasting, the unit that transmits the signal out through a phone line back to the radio station, 
the power cable was giving out. So I was having to hold the power cable in, I was having to find just the right position to physically hold the power cable with my left hand while I called the game. And that position would vary. Like this power cable was so frayed, it was getting finicky to where you'd have to hold it in different positions constantly to keep the power on. So I was having to do this for multiple days while a new, uh, a new adapter got shipped out to me. So it was just everything that could go wrong was going wrong. And then finally, on the final day of the road trip, it was a Saturday. And I remember I was just looking forward to sleeping in. I was so exhausted from this trip where everything had gone wrong. And at 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning, I get... I, I got woken up by, or awakened, I guess, whatever, whatever the grammatically correct way of saying that is, by somebody pounding on my hotel room door. And this is a, at a Motel 6 in Adelanto, California, where high desert play. You're in the middle of the Mojave Desert, pretty depressing looking place to be. This Motel 6 was very run down. Worst hotel in the league by far. And some shady characters would hang out there. And so... I get awakened at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning where I was so looking forward to sleeping in by somebody pounding on my door, and I was just, I was totally out of it, and I was disoriented. I was slightly panicked because I thought, well, if somebody's pounding on my door at 6 in the morning, there's got to be something wrong. Is the hotel on fire? Is there an emergency? What, what is happening? So I rushed to my door. I didn't even think to look in the, in the little peephole. I just opened the door, and there's this there's this short guy who's probably about five foot five wearing a long white t-shirt with this shifty look on his face. And I look to his side and he has this giant pit bull who's almost as big as he is with a big spiked collar around his neck. <laughs> and the guy looks me up and down and he, he says, Hey, is Andre there? Andre or, or Alex? I said, no. So, oh, Okay. And he turns, and he and the dog rush off. And that was it. And so I'm left at 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning saying, A, what just happened? B, that was not what I needed after what has already been a trip from hell. C, who are Andre and Alex? Why does that guy with that pit bull think that he sh they should be in my room? And is somebody else going to come back also looking for Andre and Alex? And what are Andre and Alex up to? I'm guessing it's not anything good. Are they going to think that I'm up to that? Uh, it was that, that was that was just the capper on what was a very unenjoyable road trip. So generally, I really liked traveling with Visalia. The Cal League's a good travel league. There aren't a lot of long bus rides. So I got off pretty easy overall, but that particular trip was one that I was glad when it was over, and uh, I'm glad I don't have to, to go through it again. <laughs> that is quite the story. Um, <laughs> baseball people, their scorebook is generally very personal to them. They always have kind of one that they prefer over the others and a very specific way of filling it out. Would I be able to read yours if... Which one do you use, and would I be able to read yours if I looked at it? Yeah, you probably would. I've always used the Bob Carpenter scorebook. I'm not as finicky about keeping scores as a lot of baseball guys are. I mean, I certainly do it every single game. You have to. But I'm not somebody that uses all kinds of crazy color codings to indicate different plays. I'm pretty utilitarian about it, so... 
as long as I can look back and remember what happened at the end of the game, that's good enough for me. And I don't, I very rarely go back and look at a, a previous night's score sheet after the fact, unless it was a really memorable game that I need to rehash a couple of days later. But uh, I, I'm not as, yeah, I, I'm not as anal about it as a lot of baseball guys are. And part of that is just with the internet now, uh, every game is archived. Every box score is online. Sure, maybe once every couple of years you'll be in a situation where the internet goes out and you can't access something online. But honestly, it's so rare that that happens these days. Most internet, most ballparks are, are good enough now that the information's available if you need it. So I'm just not as I'm just not as particular about that as as some baseball guys traditionally have been. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on an off day? I still like John Miller and Dave Fleming an awful lot in San Francisco. I, I love, I love Miller's. <laughs> Miller has such a unique eloquence to him that not a lot of other people could get away with. I mean, one time he he described a little pop fly single into the shallow outfield as a banana shaped parabola. I specifically remember that. So he'll use words that most of us couldn't get away with using, but he's so smooth. And I remember somebody else described listening to him as like pouring lotion in your ears, which I thought was a great description. And it's true. He has such a soothing voice, uh, but he's also very funny. He's very sort of witty and, and dry and sarcastic sometimes. And Dave Fleming plays off him so well. I think those guys, besides both being really good in their own right, they interact with each other so well, and they clearly have such a great time doing every game with each other. And so I like listening to them, not just for their individual play-by-play and what they both bring, but also listening to how they how they play off each other. Because now that I'm in a two-man booth, that's kind of the dynamic that I want Mark and I to have. And that I think we've to a large extent been able to develop the last couple of years. We really have a great time with each other too, which is important when you're you're broadcasting with somebody else you want to you want to have that chemistry and that dynamism and that ability even when a game's not that good which you play as many games as you do in in a baseball season some of them aren't going to be very good you want to be able to to joke around and be playful and have fun and make it entertaining for the listeners, even when the game itself isn't. So that's why I like listening to Miller and Fleming, because I think they do as good a job of that as, as anybody in baseball. I like Jerry, still like Jerry Howarth a ton in Toronto. Eric Nadell is great in Texas. Ken Korak is terrific in Oakland. I like Ted Leitner in San Diego. He's, he talks so fast. Sometimes you almost can't understand what he's saying. So I wouldn't necessarily imitate that about him, but you actually listen to him closely. He has some amazingly vivid descriptions. He's very good at actually describing the play when you can understand him. So he's very unique. I kind of, I kind of enjoy listening to him from time to time just for something different and to listen to how he describes things. Basketball-wise, I'm a big fan of Mark Boyle, who's the voice of the Indiana Pacers. He's an extremely nice man, and I think he's very skilled at the way he paints a basketball game, so he's a guy I've tried to learn a lot from as I try to get more reps at and, and improve at my basketball play-by-play. Football-wise, Kevin Harlan is terrific. Um, 
soccer. I love Ian Dark, who, of course, calls a lot of U.S. national team games, a lot of big games for ESPN. Uh, yeah, those. I guess those are the, the ones that come to mind, but there are so many others, of course, and you always feel bad leaving people out. But I guess those are the, the main ones that I can think of right now. All right, well, we All have right, kept we- you here for an hour and 20 minutes already, so we will uh, just uh, finish this off. With, tell anyone who's listening to this how would they reach you if they wanted to uh, – touch base with you for any reason yeah yes at donnie barnes on twitter is my twitter handle of course my name is spelled weirdly so it's d-o-n-n-y-b-a-a-r-n-s there's a long story of why my last name is spelled that way but we don't have to get into that right now Uh, my email address is donnie pbp d-o-n-n-y-p-b-p at gmail.com so yeah always happy to talk to folks once again, we are talking with Donnie Barnes. He is the number two voice of the Omaha Storm Chasers, formerly the Omaha Royals. And I'm going to send you out because I've, I've been debating whether to do this the entire time. Because I have a trivia... Everyone has their one trivia question, and I'm usually not very good at sports trivia. But I happen to know this through a strange personal experience when I was young. Who played for the Omaha Royals... That was the rookie of the year in the majors, the year of the strike. Mm, that's a good question. So 1994 was the strike. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know Angel Barrow won it in 2003 for the Royals, but I'm not sure who won it in 1994. I, I, I was. Most people would have no chance at this. I figured since you do so much digging in or so into the history, you might. But it was Bob Hamlin. And I only know this because I went to his games and I sent him a like baseball card asking for an autograph. And I never got the card back, but I got an autographed picture that I still have just as kind of a joke. So nice. there's your <laughs> irrelevant story of the day. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I should know that. And now I will know that one. So that, thanks for helping me improve my weaknesses, Logan. That's good. That's what <laughs> we should do with each other. All right. Thanks for being part of the podcast, Donnie. I appreciate it, Logan. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.